Welcome to the Innovation Roundtable Insights Podcast. This episode was recorded in Copenhagen during the 2017 Innovation Roundtable Summit, where our colleague Carolyn sat down with Michael Scott, entrepreneur-in-residence at Harvard Business School and co-founder of Underscore VC. They discuss how to establish entrepreneurial processes within established firms, collaborating with startups, and the impact of corporate venturing. Michael, thanks so much for being here today with us. So I guess just to briefly cover a few different areas, entrepreneurial processes within established firms, uh, collaborating with startups, and then maybe a little bit on corporate venturing if we have time. Sure. So I guess to dive straight in, uh, you created the Startup Secrets course, and it was, as I understand, a structure, a very logical structure that an entrepreneur can follow in order to get their idea right. up and running with legs and yeah. to, to test it and make sure it can it can grow exactly. and develop. So my first question to you is, can someone who isn't an entrepreneur but is trying to be more entrepreneurial-like, so our corporate innovators here today, can they follow the same process or would it look a little bit different? Great question. So, I mean, first of all, judging by the response from the keynote, um, it's striking some sort of a chord with people. But I will say right off the bat that one of the reasons we created it as a framework or a series of frameworks is because I don't believe people should take things in a prescriptive sense. That's actually a dangerous thing to do. So okay. uh, whether you're a startup or a large organization, the whole yeah. goal, I think, is to approach startup secrets and frameworks like it with a an inquisitive mind and to think about in your own way how could you apply it and be curious about what are the ways that for example you can improve it or adapt it or adopt it to your particular situation um, having said that if you do approach it that way i think there are plenty of things that you can get out of it and um, i've certainly seen um, not just today but also in general how people use it as a way for example to create a continuous dialogue from you know ideation all the way to creation and validation and then getting, for example, the repeat repetition and getting to scale and so forth. And one of the things that it helps with there is just having a common vocabulary uh, because you'd be amazed how many people are talking about one thing and then they really don't know whether people understand it in the way they're perceiving it over here. And so I try to make sure that there's a consistency in the framework throughout all of the different modules, whether it's from you know literally creating a value proposition to all the way through you know go to market or business models or even creating cultures, it's it's that that I think uh, as as an example can help in any situation. And perhaps even opening up some of these familiar concepts and actually re-examining them. Do you think there's, there's a lot of value in that? Yeah, absolutely. So, for example. You know, it's this sort of notion that everybody has that, oh, if I come up with a great idea, it's sort of a breakthrough idea, that that's going to be a great starting point. I actually think that's rubbish. I mean, you know, uh, in many instances, the idea is such a tiny fraction of what it takes to go and build something of substantive value. Um, And in often cases, um, it turns out to be the wrong idea. And Mm -hmm. so then what are you left with? So instead, for example, as we talked today in one of the workshops, um, you know, how do you start with a really significant, painful problem that we, if we unpack it to use your verbiage, mm-hmm. you know, we can get people to evaluate in a way that can give them confidence that what they're about to invest their life in, because uh, never mind our money. I mean, what people, you know, as, as entrepreneurs do is, is basically commit their time and energy to it. And large organizations, it's still the same. You're putting a reputation on the line. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to evaluate it. So 
some basic things we do there are to unpack it and do what I've talked about as the four U's, figure out, you know, is this unworkable? Is it unavoidable? Is it urgent? Is it underserved, etc. And once you go through those kinds of things, sure, you might turn out to have an incredibly valuable idea, but it's worth doing that work up front before you suddenly find yourself in a basically an unneeded, which is not the you we want yeah. Um, situation. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess the, the, the question I think on everyone's lips here is how can established firms become more like startups that more agile more lean more speedy um, and what what does that take what, do, what yeah. can they do great well i hinted at some of the things today but i'll just give you a couple of um, you know examples so we can t take a, a moment to reflect on these first of all there is no one answer um, yeah. so it's not you know appropriate to again say well this is your sort of set of steps mm -hmm. but there are a couple of things that that i've seen that are really effective number one is take yourself out of the current framework you're in because the large organization is comfortable, whether you like it or not. You, you have resources, you have brand, you have distribution, you have reputation, you have credibility, you have all these things that seem like they're really helpful. They actually get in the way mm. when you're trying to innovate because if you're really going to validate whether you've got something worth doing, you need to throw all that aside and you need to go out and speak to your customers in a way that is basically, you know, nakedly, asking them whether they actually see this as something worth doing. Yeah. Um, and so that means, you know, getting out of your comfort zone, getting out and validating things in a way that puts aside all of that and then figuring out, for example, how to build on that. So that's just one example of it. Sure. And maybe just to elaborate a little further, I'm sure, I mean, there's probably quite a, a, a knack to going out and getting that validation in yeah. terms of, you know, what are the questions you're asking? Who right. are you asking to? And also, I think maybe perhaps you could elaborate further on how do you then... Bring it back. Bring it back. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, great. So let's answer both those questions. Um, first of all, Anna, how do you start to get validation? So I offered a framework today I call the Game Pain Framework, which is a way to validate whether you've really got something that is, you know, going to give enough gain that people will go through the pain of trying to actually adopt it. Um, but I gave a specific example today of, of what's an example question that yeah. you can use right away. And it is, okay, so you're a potential customer. Tell me all the reasons why you wouldn't buy my product, Carolyn. Now, that's probably not a question you've ever been asked before. And maybe I wouldn't feel too comfortable answering that directly. Have you experienced a scenario where people will tell you what you want to hear? Yeah, the entrepreneur yeah. has to be good. I mean, in this case, the organization has to learn yeah. how to listen very carefully, very actively. Yeah. Say, well, okay, well, tell me how you think about this. Right. How do you think about this problem? Where do you think about alternatives to this? What are the things that you currently do? What are the ways in which when you're using your current products, they either meet or don't meet your needs? I mean, there are a hundred questions that come out of it. Mm -hmm. But in the end, what you're trying to do is to tease out of your potential customer all the things that would stop them engaging with you. And that's all the, the uh, pain side of the game pain equation. And it's all the things that people actually forget to do. They mm -hmm. all go right in with, well, I've got all these features and look at all these advantages and all the benefits. And by the way, it's cheap. And, and that's not what causes people to adopt products, as it turns out. You've got to get through all those other things in the, in the game pain ratio before you can really get them to begin to use your product. So that's one example. Mm -hmm. uh, then you asked about, you know, how do you bring it back in? Well, I'm no expert in this, and I have to be very clear, there are probably plenty of people who could give you a better answer to this, but what I've seen is this. 
Um, those that do figure out how to get out of their comfort zone and to develop the, if you like, innovation in a startup-like manner, do it in a holistic sense. They don't just do it in a technology sense. So, for example, they think about how do they develop things like their team or their culture in a way that is startup-like. Uh, mm -hmm. They develop things like the business model, their go-to-market, and everything else that makes them holistically like a mini business. And uh, to bring it back in can be really tricky unless you figure out in advance who is going to be your internal sponsor and ultimately your internal customer for what you're going to bring back in or partner. Mm -hmm. And so my advice is watching this is to make sure that people are thinking about who do they create that relationship with so that when they do go out and they develop this, if you like, holistic approach to innovation with everything from their product to their organization and um, what it takes to go deliver this, that they have somebody who can help them bring that back in. And if that's something that you've pre-thought, then part of what you're doing all the way along that journey is making sure that your sponsor or your partner in this you know, venture is going to help you re-enter the uh, organization with a way to make this successful. So I gave an example today of what Amazon did with um, you know, Amazon Web Services and the entrepreneurship that Andy Jassy did in creating that business. Uh, he effectively had the CEO's ear, um, Jeff Bezos. He was in an advantage place because he happened to be his right-hand man for a while. Um, as part of this, you know, continuing to work with him throughout the process. And so for, when he asked for his original 57 people uh, to start his you know, business, he was getting sponsorship even from the very first days. And what he did, which was very smart, this is a particular thing that Amazon does, but it could be adopted by anybody, is he wrote the press release uh, and wrote the value proposition effectively before they started anything. So everybody said, well, if you build that, yeah, then we want to use that. And they validated that before they you know, did anything, which is a great way to go. So I, I think mm. get a sponsor, validate internally, um, and do things like you know, Amazon's famous six-pager for doing the press release or you know, writing the value prop in advance, and make sure you've got sponsorship as you go out and that you continue to keep the dialogue live so you can bring it back in. Yeah. You mentioned, I guess, a little bit earlier about you know having an idea, but then it may or may not be valuable. Yeah. I guess we've encountered that some some startups or some entrepreneurs they fall in love with their idea. Almost all. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it can be a little bit hard maybe to, to get feedback that kind of uh, mm -hmm. doesn't validate that. Mm -hmm. Have you experienced um, the same kind of phenomenon uh, in, a, in a corporate setting or yeah. are they a little bit more clinical about uh, you know, not owning their, their baby idea. I think it's very similar. I mean, people have mm. sort of a, a natural <laughs> tendency, right? If you create yeah. something, you tend to want to, you know, like be the proud bearer of it, whether <laughs> it's an idea or, you know, a kid effectively. And so um, that's just a natural human tendency. That's why mm. um, I'm at, you know, odds in many instances with, with the way that corporates often try to do this, which is to say, well, we'll do it with, from within because as I say, it's just too comfortable. Uh, and so uh, it's very easy for you to kind of protect, you know, something that you're doing with it from within. But actually, if you genuinely see if it's got legs, just like, you know, at some point you have to let your toddler figure out whether they can walk for themselves. You can't walk for them. Um, and so you've got to do the same thing from a corporate standpoint. You've really got to see whether they have legs outside the organization, whether they can actually get other customers, whether they can really validate that people will pay for this. Uh, I mean, you can go so far as to do what some organizations I see do, which is really great, which is they actually go and get paying customers to effectively upfront commit to revenue 
before they even start development. Oh, that wow. way they've really got validation. So it's, it's, you know, it's real money. Yeah. It's, it's committed to on contracts based on the delivery of those products or services. Um, and that really validates, obviously, that you, you're doing something that's meaningful. Because you may so many people say, yeah, I, I need this or I'd like that or whatever. But when it comes to actually write the check, they won't do it. Yeah. So if you go get the check up front, then you know you're onto something. Sure. And I guess it's a great financial model that yeah. you're, you know, exactly. you're then funding it. Exactly. You're okay. F- yeah, you're funding it in a, in a market-driven, market-led, market-tested way rather than an internal protected and internal validated way, which is, as I said, very dangerous. Sure. Um, I guess when we're talking about then how to how to get ideas to grow legs, yeah. uh, for want of a yeah, better that's word. That's um, What's your opinion then on, on particular um, particular methodologies that mm-hmm. are out there that mm-hmm. are being used? Um, you know, uh, things like lean startup principles. I mean, what are the, the benefits and what are the, the challenges to using this approach? And is it, can you, can you adopt simultaneous different methods and you know how what's the best way to go about it really sure Uh, again it's a great question i think these methodologies lean is is a great example are all about doing one thing which is you know getting an agile process to engage and figure out how to validate so i'm a big fan of them and i think again the only danger is to end up in a place where you have an inconsistent set of methodologies that are conflicting with each other so example, I try to pay attention carefully to things like, you know, MVP, minimal viable product. But as you probably heard me say in the keynote, it's not complete. Um, there are always things that you can learn. And so I don't think, you know, any framework out there is, is perfect. Mm-hmm. So long as you keep consistently, for example, applying and thinking about how you use it, though, you can add tremendous value to it. So uh, an example to bring it to life is I talk about this concept called minimum viable segment, mm-hmm. which is if you've got a minimum viable product, that's great until you take it out into the big bad world out there. And suddenly this tiny product we've developed, that has got very few features that just does exactly what you want as it's sort of minimum viable starting point gets applied by people with different needs and different use cases and different approaches to making it work. Mm-hmm. And suddenly they start requesting this feature and that function and this capability, you get pulled all over the place. So your little product suddenly gets pulled into being nothing minimum at all, but actually, you know, a pretty bloated set of things and requirements on your roadmap. And that's a real problem. I see that happen a lot. Mm-hmm. So instead, what I advocate for is that you need the minimum viable segment as the dance partner to the minimum viable product. And the intersection between those two becomes a compelling basis to keep developing. So just explain what MVS is. Sure. It's very simple. It's this notion that you can find a collective group of people who have the same needs. So mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that, for example, they are all going to be trying to use your product, your MVP, in different ways. It means that they'll basically be using it in the same way because they're the same needs. And so if you can find a series of people who all have the same need, they might be in different verticals, they might be in different industries, they might be in different jobs, but if they have the same need, that becomes your minimum viable segment. And when you take your product out, your MVP, because you're applying it to the same need every time in the MVS, it doesn't get bloated. And you very quickly understand whether you can get repeatable delivery of that value. And if you can, then you're onto a basic uh, you know, market segment that you can build on. That's a very different uh, way of working. Very it makes It makes a huge amount of sense when, when you say it. It's very yeah. logical. Yeah. Um, 
have have many companies that you know have adopted this approach. Yeah, many. Uh, can you perhaps give any examples? Sure. Or divulge any, yeah, any sure. stories? So I was giving an example uh, a little bit earlier, actually, and, and we'll talk about it tomorrow because I think it's a it's a really great case in point. So I'll have the entrepreneur here. His name is David Hurley. Started a company called Maltic. It happens to be in the marketing automation world. So today, if you're a marketer, it's really challenging to stitch together all these tools that you have that do everything from track people's email to their Twitter feeds or the way they work on your website. Really tough. There's, there's literally hundreds of these tools. David was the first guy to create a, an open source marketing automation platform that could integrate all of these different tools and make it possible for you to get one end-to-end value chain where you can track your customer through all of the different channels and you can serve them effectively. So very clever um, and obvious mm-hmm. sort of advantage for any marketer. But which marketer do you go after? Do you go after you know, the, the small um, size business? Do you go after the enterprise? Do you go after SMB? Well, he picked to go after the larger companies, but then he got even more specific and said, okay, it turns out that companies who have, for example, agencies that they work with um, who have many, many different products that are referred to them, is an MVS for them because agencies really struggle to manage all their clients um, with all the different products and different tools, and yet they want one or two consistent campaigns that go through them. So for them, the MVS became working with enterprises who have agencies, and that is the same set of needs over and over and over again, and they're being very effective selling to them. That's fair. That's that's be very interesting to hear more yeah. about tomorrow. Yeah. Um, I guess another question that is cropping up at Innovation Roundtable at the moment is um, how, how well-established large multinational corporations can successfully collaborate with startups. It's like two different worlds, two different languages sometimes. I think it's something that's, that companies are starting to adopt and explore but there doesn't seem to be many, you know, best practice cases out there yet. And I guess from your perspective as an entrepreneur yeah. as well, perhaps you have some insights you could share as to how, you know, what are the kinds of things you should think about and consider yeah. in effectively collaborating with startups? Yeah. So I've had plenty of experience with this on both sides of this, Okay. Uh, both as an entrepreneur, building businesses and working with large companies and then also as an investor, investing in companies that get engaged all the time by startups. So um, it depends on whether you're being, for example, a customer or a partner or an investor as a large company. And these usually get horribly confused. So the first thing you've got to do is clarify this. So let's start with customer. Mm. If you're going to be a customer of of a small company, of a startup, you've got to understand that the most likely thing you can do is tread on them as an elephant and kill them. And unfortunately, that happens all the time. Okay. You know, you're basically dancing with an elephant as a, as a, <laughs> as a startup. And, and it's really tough. Uh, they don't mean to, but they just, you know, tread on your toes. And the next thing you know, you know, you've got hundreds of requirements that are completely off the roadmap that, you know, completely overwhelm the startup. And the next thing, the, the startup can't, you know, cope. They can't serve the main audience. So the startup owns one piece of that, which is obviously the discipline to not get pulled into that dangerous dance. And uh, the enterprise owns the other piece, which is to make sure that they are buying what the startup is selling. And that if they go off the roadmap, that they're very clear that that is something they're going to pay for and that they create you know, statements of work for it and that it's actually managed correctly and it's scoped and so forth. So that's as a customer. Mm-hmm. As a partner, um, you have to be very careful not to smother your startup. 
because the advantage of the startup has, as we talked about, is speed. And so if you try to help them too much, often what you find you do is you actually fill them up with, you know, all these processes and procedures that just slow them down. Uh, mm -hmm. And you see that all the time too. And so again, what you've really got to do is le let them be independent and run as fast as they can. And your job is to make sure you keep up with them, not the other way around. Uh, because it's usually that, that that's the challenge. And be careful not to partner in a way that, for example, just puts your hooks into them and slows them down. Um, as an investor, there's a simple golden rule for me, which is don't invest in a startup unless you're very clear about whether you are doing it for financial reasons or for strategic reasons. And don't confuse the two. Okay. So let me be specific here. Uh, often you'll see a large company, and I don't want to name names, but there are many with three letters that you know I've seen do this all the time, or less. Um, and that what they'll do is they'll say, oh, you know what, we think we've got a great partnership opportunity or we could be a great customer for you, but we'd like to invest in you first because we think it'll be safer that way. You know, we don't want you to go out of business. So you see that a lot. That's a kiss of death to a startup because what actually happens is that you make the investment and now the startup is brought in to the large organization as, hey, we've invested in this company. We want you to use them. We want you to work with them. That's like being told by your boss that you should do something. I mean, nobody likes that, but it's 10 times worse than that in most organizations. And by the way, the corporate development organization is usually totally disconnected from the business units and they don't speak the same language, let alone understand the same requirements. So instead, what I recommend is the exact opposite. I, I don't recommend investing until you have decided, okay, if it's purely financial, then fine, make the investment and let the startup run and do their own thing and make a lot of money out of them when they're very successful yeah. or be prepared to write it off. If it's for strategic reasons, mm. then do the strategic partnership first. Make sure that the business unit is really getting value out of the product, that your end customer is benefiting from that partnership, say the whole product solution of the startup plus your product or service. And if that's working really well in the field and in the business unit, and you want to seal the relationship with some kind of investment that supports the company in some way, then fine. But also be prepared even to do that silently, you know, without your name attached to it. And so um, that can be a, a great set of, you know, examples of how you can do it differently. Yeah. I guess just to further, just so, just so I'm clear, there's, there's some discussion today about, you know, that, well, there's obviously a huge amount of emphasis on them. Um, digital digital transformation digital technologies yeah. um you know traditional maybe product based uh companies who are realizing okay this is this is something that we need to pay attention to um it's not our core competency mm -hmm. so we can either decide to you know build it internally ourselves develop yeah. these digital capabilities we can um you know acquire it may be from buying a startup um, yeah. or to um, partner. Yeah. In in this context, I mean, do you, do you have an example of where it managed to work out pretty well when sure. it was a, a startup uh, collaboration in this respect? Sure. Um, so let's you picked an interesting example, which is the whole digital transformation. So one of my companies is involved mm -hmm. right in the heart of that, which is Acquia. Okay. And... Uh, you know, most of their customers are using Acquia to create digital experiences. And this is companies like GE or Johnson & Johnson or Pfizer or the whole Olympics, you know, uh, CN, um, NBC that uh, runs their platform. 
Um, these are digital experiences that are, you know, pretty transformational to say the least mm -hmm. in terms of the way we work with these companies, either as customers, as partners, as suppliers or employees, etc. And so Acquis is at the center of this and those are big companies they're dealing with. And on the one hand, people looked at Acquia as a startup a while back and said, hey, you, you know, you're uh, putting the commercial entity behind the Drupal open source project, the fabulous project that it, it, it's built on. Uh, but on, on the other hand, you know, you're a startup and we can't risk the Olympics or, you know, GE's homepage on you. You, you just, you know, you're not credible yet to us. And so um, the company gained credibility by doing, you know, some incredible, you know, successful sites, for example, the Wordhouse and, and uh, others, most of the, the government in the U.S. and many places around the world actually runs on, on Acquia Drupal. Um, so it gained credibility. But during that process, it made a partnership with Amazon. And because Amazon's cloud services were becoming kind of a, like the de facto standard. And the partnership was conceived exactly the way I just described to you. Amazon didn't say, let me you know, invest in you or overwhelm you. What they said was, let's figure out how to make this work in the field. Let's figure out how we can take you to our accounts because they all the accounts that we are you know, working with need digital transformation. They need the new kinds of digital experiences that Agri can provide them. And if that works, then we'll be happy you know, to, to provide you sort of technical insights into how you can really use the Amazon cloud to your advantage. So the technical groups got involved as well as the sales teams It worked out extremely well. And then ultimately, Amazon said at some point, you know what, we really love the business you're writing. This is going to be very successful. We also would love to write a check and be one of the investors, uh, which they became one of the investors. They didn't write an overwhelmingly large check. They wanted to write a very big check, but they wrote a you know, reasonable sized check, still tens of millions. But mm -hmm. the point is, it was a partnership born of exactly the three steps I described to you. Mm -hmm. you know, get it right in the field first, then figure out how to integrate it into the business unit, and only then figure out how to turn it into an investment. Right, okay. So kind of, I think you mentioned it also in your in your presentation, the sense of um, patience. In yeah, this. absolutely. Got to be very patient. Yeah. Yeah. I guess moving on to maybe the more the, the financial side of things, so, sure. so drawing more on the, the venture capital experience. Um, so when, so from maybe uh, the standpoint of one of the, the corporations here, and if they're looking to evaluate um, uh, it could be a project, shall we call it? It could be yeah. a startup, or it could be it could be their own. Um, but I guess are the fundamentals then the same in terms of the the, the criteria of sh should we invest more money into this idea? How do you make sense of that? How do you? It's quite a risk, no? Yeah, no uh, on 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 something that is is not determined yeah. yet. Um, so of course there's no easy answer to this. No. You know, you can't just say, okay, well, you know, there's a formula for this and we'll just take the risk out of it. But I'll share, um, two things that are specific to the way we approach this as, as venture investors. And, uh, both of them, uh, are applicable. And then something that is specific to, uh, large enterprises and, and corporates doing this. So, uh, the two things as venture investors that are always there and that you always want to take time to, to do the diligence on as we want to call it, are people and the marketplace. So um, if you look at the success rates of our business, it's all about people. It's all about finding bold, brave entrepreneurs who can think differently about how to approach problems, who have the passion and persistence to work through all the things that are going to ultimately be very unexpected that occur as you're creating new products and making breakthroughs and ending up in different and unknown territory. These are incredibly challenging things that startups face all the time. 
And I experience it myself as an entrepreneur. I see it every day as an investor. This is what it takes to build something different. So that's a people question. And you've just got to do the work to understand whether you can get comfortable that you're really dealing with an exceptional entrepreneur. And if you're not, don't bother going to the next level. Um, once you've got through that, then the next thing to, to obviously evaluate is the market. And that's tough because in many instances, you're betting on innovation that isn't going to come to ultimately dominate or even create a market for years. And so you've got to have vision. You've got to have a vision for where is this market going to go? How is it going to evolve? What are the factors that are going to make it, for example, um, you know, ultimately become something that is significant and meaningful and impactful? And um, that vision you want to look for, again, in the people yeah. that you're investing in. Do they have it? Do they really understand it? Can you get in sync with it? And then ultimately, do you believe that at the end of this, if that vision comes true, you'll have a significant enough market that's worth taking that risk on? So it's a risk reward game. You say, if it's a big enough market, then the risk reward's worth doing that. So those are the two uh, venture investor tips that, that I use from corporates. Mm. And then the corporate tip that is very specific to them is uh, to think about this in terms of a win-win relationship. Right. So easy to forget. But, um, and again, the, the startup owns one part of this. If you can't define a relationship right up front, that is very clearly going to be a win-win. In other words, the entrepreneur can look at you in the eye and say, okay, Carolyn, I get it. If mm -hmm. I make this happen, you're going to be very successful in this segment of your market or bringing this new service to market or whatever it might be. Uh, and you look at them and go, yeah, and if I use your product and service, I can see how you're going to make enough money out of that that you can continue to invest in that innovation and come back with new products and services to meet the changing needs of my customer. If that isn't really clearly understood up front, don't do it. Yeah. And and oftentimes what you'll see is the exact opposite. You know, you'll see startups who naively say, oh, you know, this big enterprise can give me capital. Or they can give me access to distribution. They're not going to do that. Mm -hmm. They're only going to do it when it makes sense for them, when it helps them attract or retain customers, uh, or when it's obviously ultimately profitable for them to do it, or where it's strategic, to, for example, you know, making a whole product for you or something like that. Uh, and then obviously if they do see that, then you need to know that when they see it, you're going to be able to service and support them profitably and that they want to do that, that they want you to be successful independently to be able to continue to have that win-win relationship. Otherwise, again, this notion of patience that I was talking about earlier, which is a reality that it takes seven or eight years to get these companies to be standalone, independent, strong businesses. You'll never see that through. I guess, are the incentives a little bit different or are the conditions a little bit different? Because, for example, if you have, if you have an idea in a company, yeah. it may not even be that you're on a specific, you know, innovation team. Mm -hmm. So you're probably faced with the dilemma of, okay, where do I go with this idea? And hopefully there is a, there is a structure in the corporation that will capture this and support this. Otherwise, it may go elsewhere. But how... How to how should a a, a a team in in the corporate environment negotiate this process with the entrepreneur yeah. and and put their glasses on and look at them as an entrepreneur and, and see whether they passionate or dedicated or is it the fact that is it just to evaluate the idea alone because they're going to take the idea and maybe give it to someone else or. Have you experienced this? Yes. Okay. Because a lot of the uh, great entrepreneurs that we back come out of large companies. And the reason they come out of large companies is because they know that it's not going to be successful to try to do this inside them. 
Yeah. So if you look at the success of a lot of our businesses, it's in two regards. It's obviously in terms of the value they create, but we also look about it in terms of regeneration of new entrepreneurs. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm about to back, actually I have backed, just as in public knowledge, an entrepreneur that's coming out of a very successful security business. And he chose to leave because he knows that it's important for him to actually create something that can stand alone, as I talked about earlier. Yeah. Uh, and that it's going to be too difficult to do it in his current business. They've already got constraints. They've got a legacy of customers, a certain approach mm -hmm. to that. And so, you know, very disruptive to that business. Um, and actually, it just doesn't make sense. So for many entrepreneurs, the yeah. first asset test question is, why am I even doing this inside the company? Yeah. What is it about this internal sort of startup that I'm doing that is uniquely advantaged by being inside the business? And if it isn't, get out. Uh, now, if it is, you better go make sure that you've got an environment that's well understood uh, mm -hmm. by everybody that I was describing to you earlier as your sponsor, uh, that wants that innovation, wants that disruption, because in many instances, they don't. It's actually, you know, going to cause them issues. It's going to cause them disruption. It's going to cause them pain. It's going to cause them all the things that they can't handle yeah. uh, and cause them to take risks, which they're not comfortable doing. So mm -hmm. um, I'm not a big fan of trying to pretend about entrepreneurship in, in large organizations. I think, mm -hmm. you know, be upfront about it is the, is the number one you know, piece of advice here. Get clarity right up front, whether you really have an advantage, both sides of it, from the organization to have you do the startup internally and for you as the entrepreneur to do it internally if you don't leave yeah i think that's a, a very important takeaway also for for um corporations who want to uh, support entrepreneurship to yeah. to consider it from their perspective perhaps yeah. um, oh, by the way i don't want to miss the fact that there are many advantages and i, I gave a, a hint of them at the end of the presentation to why you might want to do it inside of a large company um, sure. And, uh, you know, again, I gave you the example of, of how for Amazon, for example, the team that started Amazon Web Services was uniquely advantaged by doing it inside of Amazon, just to make it extremely clear why mm -hmm. they had Amazon's huge data centers and the potential excess capacity to be able to leverage. And if they had gone off as a startup to try to create that, mm -hmm. that would have been extremely expensive, if not impossible. So that was advantage one. Advantage two is they had a whole series of customers internally who could build off the cloud services they were creating to build the products and services that Amazon was needing for its retail business. So that was you know, number two. But culturally, they also gave Andy, Jassy and his team who started this, the ability to think about if they're successful at this, how would they actually make it available to other people outside the organization? And that buy-in was upfront. And remember what I said earlier, you know, get this up front. So they did it with their, you know, famous internal six pages with their press releases and their value propositions disclosed up front. So it's still the same advice. You know, mm -hmm. there could be tremendous advantages, but clarify that up front. Yeah. I guess we've covered a huge amount here yeah. and thank you so much for today. I guess just out of curiosity, yeah. um, your startup secrets has been such a success. Uh, just wondering, is there is there a startup secrets 2.0 or what's next in store for you in terms of your yeah great question. your teaching path yeah so um it's a continuously evolving platform so we've formed a foundation behind it so that it can be spun up in its own right and uh, we're busy looking for somebody to actually uh you know help us develop that continue to you know build the organization behind it uh and make sure that it has its own non-for-profit life behind it Okay. And so, you know, if there are corporate sponsors or there are other people that want to be involved in it, which we're getting a lot of interest in, 
then we believe that it should have its own, you know, ability to grow, not just as 2.0, but an ongoing you know, commitment. For me, it's, you know, three or four years into this journey, it's, it's a way bigger success than we ever would have imagined. Uh, I mean, if you told me you had, you know, five million hours of viewing on some of the things, I would have said, you've got to be joking. I mean, <laughs> why would we have that? But what I've realized from it, though, is that it needs to continue to grow like everything else and stay current. And so our goal is to keep it independently growing and to keep it fueled with current examples and to keep it live and to keep engaging entrepreneurs in a way that they can bring their stories to it too. So right. we are excited about doing that and yeah. excited about having that independence and it's not for profit, you know, foundation behind it. Well, that's fantastic. Well, best of luck with that. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time today. Pleasure. Really enjoyed it, Carol. The video version of this podcast can be accessed via innovationroundtable.online. The Innovation Roundtable online network is your portal to a wide variety of exclusive content, including video presentations, interviews, insights reports, and articles. Not only that, innovationroundtable.online is also a place where you can connect with other corporate innovators, share experiences, request collaborations, and gain inspiration from your peers. Our network is exclusively for innovation practitioners and large firms. So visit innovationroundtable.online to discover more and request your seven-day free trial account.